This is episode 23 of the Immunology Podcast, Dendritic Cells and the Immune System, Gaetano Reis Susa. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Caetano Reyes-Sousa from the Francis Crick Institute on the podcast to talk about his research in the molecular pathways that trigger dendritic cells into action. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Are you using dendritic cells for your research? With Immunocold Dendritic Cell Culture Kit from Stem Cell Technologies, you can generate immature as well as mature dendritic cells from human monocytes. Learn more at www.stemcell.com forward slash DC culture kit. Excellent. Well, Brenda, how are you? Hi, Jason. I'm doing very well. Good, how are good. yourself? Okay, okay. So, you know, I guess that, let's see here. We're recording this right before Valentine's Day. So do you have any plans uh, for what's going to be coming up here? Not really. Not a big Valentine uh, fan here. Uh, I mean, many people are going on dinners on, on Monday, so I figure it makes sense to go on Tuesday or Wednesday. It would be a good time to reserve a spot. A lot of free places. My wife and I have the same thought. We typically go the week after uh, because, like, the food's all, you know, not actually as good on the time of Valentine's Day. You sometimes get a good deal on the price, but the restaurants are, like, overwhelmed, and, like, every restaurant in the world's buying the same steak or fish or something at the same time. We've never had good luck. Plus, I, I got promoted, and so we were going to go this weekend for, you know, the, the obligatory steak dinner, but then we're like, eh, it's Valentine's Day. So, like, the week of the 20th, I think we'll do something. Who needs Valentine's Day when you have promotion day? Exactly. Well, it used to be for papers, that we'd always go out, but now, but now it's for other things. Congratulations. When I grow up, Jason, I want to be like you. Oh, thank you. You know, you're, you're, you're close. <laughs> But you know, there's there's something else coming up uh, that is uh, closer, also closer, to, close to our hearts. Uh, AAI um, conference 2022. It's coming up uh, in your hometown. Yes, I heard it's in Portland, Oregon, one of the best places in the world. Like living in a postcard. So I highly recommend everyone go to AAI if you can. Some of us may be there. It depends on what uh, you know various travel restrictions exist at the time. But check it out. Just go ask for Jason. He's going to buy you steak with his exactly. salary bump. Yeah, right, yeah. We have a line now. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm not going. It's a bit far. But uh, those interested, don't forget the registration closes on March 29th. And yeah, we're going to do something special for, for, for AAI. So just stay tuned. Uh, we'll have more information coming up soon. Excellent. All right. Well, we got a, a bevy of papers to discuss. Indeed. Um, I chose all things COVID just because, you know, I feel it's, it's been a few weeks since we did a COVID deep dive and, you know, that's like a year in pandemic time. Um, I know it's been, it's been quiet. Uh, not because it is really quiet because here every COVID just exploded everywhere and all over, all around. So let's see what the, the latest uh, science brings us. Why don't you start? All right. I may do mine too real quick or I'll, we'll, we'll see if we want to go back and forth. You sure, have a T-cell sure. paper too. So here, I'll do talk about T-cells in COVID and then we can flip to your T-cells. Okay. Perfect. Good there enough. We go. All right. So this one is in cell. It was received on the, it was accepted on 20th of January. It's still in the pre-proof stage. It is called T-cell reactivity to the SARS-CoV-2 Omicron variant. It's preserved in most, but not all individuals. First author is Vivek Darandai, and last author is Garav D. Dehai. And it is a pretty good tour de force of uh, immune effects from convalescent patients. So they basically looked, they took blood from people who had never been exposed to COVID, people who were infected with COVID, people who were vaccinated against COVID, and all combinations thereof. So infected and vaccinated, and so on. And then overlapped it with peptide pools from wild type and Omicron variant, as well as Delta spike variant, and tried to see what the cells would do, effector T-cell responses and memory T-cell responses and effective boosters. So without getting super into the weeds, at a high level, it's an interferon gamma ELISA spot assay um, as their main measure. And plus they did some CFSE proliferation studies. 
And long and short is that cellular immunity looks largely intact against Omicron post-vaccination or post-infection. In some cases, effector immunity is decreased in a subpopulation of people. So if you really parse things out, if you look at the average overall, it looks fine, but you can then see that there are some people that don't respond as well, particularly to the effector cell responses. And then they did epitope mapping and realized that, the, and then if you kind of look at those people, they have HLA subclasses that are more likely to bind to parts of the Omicron peptide, the spike peptide, that are changed between that and wild type. So they're more likely to lose the response from the HLA subtyping. But if memory cells are largely intact responses, booster cell boosting helps in all cases. So the number of people who don't response go down, the, the magnitude of the response and people who respond less is increased. Generally speaking, everyone has an increased response with boosting. So it shows a lot of the real world data, but deep dives into it in, in kind of a neat way and really does show that the immunological variation with HLA classing um, explains some of the fact that we're losing it. It's in those people with the right types of HLAs that then bind to the, pro the parts of the spike protein that are different between wild type and Omicron or Omicron. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know which pronunciation we feel like using. Then it would be the wrong type of HLA, I guess, for the purpose of uh protecting of, of keeping your memory yeah yeah exactly so the the different hla you, you won't keep your memory because it binds to the part that's changed that's interesting yeah why real life consequences of individual immune, immunity plus uh population level effects of boosting so there you go what we're seeing in the world appears in the immune cells Fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm, I find very comforting uh, the fact that we, you know, it feels a little bit like there's already been a bunch of papers showing that T cell immunity uh, is holding the fort, and I, I, I find that comforting. Um, and I think it's, but I think it's really cool that they, they actually found a reason for certain individuals to uh, lose immunity due to their HLA types. Um, and I think that's that's also very interesting, as you say, real life effects of uh, HLA diversity. So thanks for bringing that nice paper to the table. It's a good one. It's, uh, it's good to know what's going on. And again, it seems the vaccines seem to work really well to preserve immunity. Okay. That's good. That's good for Pfizer's bottom line and Moderna's stock price. And their stock, they had a bad stock readout recently. Uh, I know. Yeah, I heard. Demand. I, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting uh, time for biotech stock. Well, let's not get down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, do you want to continue with your next one, or should I uh, talk about some real life uh, consequences of T cell immunity? Right, you jump to T cells, and then I'll switch back to something else. I'll go to endothelial cells next. Okay, let's just stick to the T cells for now. I want to share the results from a uh, what was a kind of cornerstone in uh, immunotherapy with some of the first patients treated with CAR T-cells back in 2010 um, in, in UPenn. You know that place, right? You've been there. Uh, <laughs> for our old listeners who don't remember, yes. Uh, and uh, there's been uh, almost over 10 years since these first patients were treated. And some really cool uh, analysis of the response of these complete responders has been characterized and published. So let's just talk a little bit about that. First, yay, 10 years since uh, T-cell therapy, uh, CAR T-cell uh, therapy, uh, big, I think it's a big thing, a big win. Uh, this is a, the paper is called Decade-Long Leukemia Remissions with Persistence of CD4 CAR T-cells. Gives away a little bit of the content. The first author is Joseph Mellenhorst from where else? The lab of Carl June, uh, a friend of the show, by the way. Uh, we have an interview with him a couple of shows ago. Um, and basically, they uh, evaluated the CAR T cells, uh, or the presence and the quality of the CAR T cells in patients that, as I mentioned, were treated over 10 years ago in, in 2010. These were two adult patients that were treated for chronic lymphocytic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, which is actually not amongst the uh, approved um, diseases for, for this therapy, 
So now it's only approved for B cell, uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. I think that's probably the most com most known. And uh, but these patients were treated in the in the context of a clinical trial. And they were infused with cells that uh, had a CAR T cell, which the, with the construct uh, that is similar to the Kimraya, so which is would be the Kimraya uh, CAR T cell that has a 41BB signaling domain. And um, they got fairly different doses. I think this is also very interesting. Although the first patient had a doses of over a billion cells, uh, 10 to the 9 cells. The patient, second patient that also was a complete responder uh, and he's been cancer-free for almost 10 years, only received, and listen to this, 14 million cells, 14 million CAR T cells. And that was enough to, 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 uh, to handle his, his tumor. So if they look into the, the kind of history of these patients, uh, both patients had pretty much undetectable B cells and, and lymphoma after uh, three years. But the, the cells, they show that the cells stay there, the CAR T cells stay there for a really long time. Although they were kind of in the background, they were still a stable population of these CAR T cells uh, many, many years after. So what they did is they did a kind of a very uh, a wide uh, cytop panel uh, with 40 different uh, markers to characterize the cells. And they what one thing that really comes up is that... Um, that fairly early on already, there started being a skewage towards a CD4 population. And by the end of these, so by, by the time right now, by the time of several years down the road, uh, car, CD4 T cells became the vast majority of the CAR T cells. Almost 100% of the remaining CAR T cells so far are CD4 positive. Um, they also had, in the case of the second patient with the, with a lower dose, they observed at the beginning of the treatment, a large population that was CD4, CD8 negative. And so the, and I think that it was funny because they do a full, uh, RNA seq with a site seq. So markers, uh, antibodies, uh, labeled with, uh, um, with barcode, uh, barcoding, uh, D uh, DNA to, to uh, read, so to sequence this too. And they make a UMAP, they characterize the cluster just to find out that this CD4, CD8 negative, CD4 negative, CD8 negative population was gamma delta T cell, um, which I would assume a gamma delta antibody would have shown uh, right in their initial experiments. So I thought that was a little bit of an overkill, but still very interesting. So this patient also had a considerable gamma delta T cell population that was cytotoxic and uh, that also presumably uh, uh, was uh, responsible to some extent of the, of the tumor control. And, but by the, by the year seven uh, and, and by the year now in nine, um, most of the CAR T cells, as I said, are CD4 cells characterized by a high expression of Ki67 uh, and other markers related to T cell activation, including CD38, HLIDR. Uh, interestingly enough, TOX, uh, EOMS also, and CD27 and CCR7, which are usually were associated with kind of this long-lived uh, memory T cells, so I think maybe related to their high longevity. Um, well, they also looked into, uh, they did analysis looking into places where uh, the transgenes integrated. They saw that at some points they did uh, disrupt the expression of certain genes, but it wasn't like the TED2 story that also came from the lab, Carl June lab that they found this very specific uh, knockout uh, of genes uh, became dominant uh, in the these populations. Although both both cases, the population are very oligoclonal, so a very a very few. Uh, clones that dominated the the CAR T cells by by this time. So, um, so I think and just to assess the final thing that I I thought was very cool is that this CAR the CD4 T cells they're activated, they are highly proliferative, and they're also cytotoxic. They're expressing granzyme K and granzyme A and also perf perforin, which is not unlike maybe granzyme B. That I think is more commonly evaluated for cytotoxicity. Um, and this reminds me of a paper that came out last year and they're also looking into uh, CD4 cytotoxic cells and I think it was in context of bladder cancer and they also found this 
kind of curious uh, combination of cytotoxic markers. So I thought that in general, um, the paper is pretty small, so anybody interested in kind of this very uh, breakthrough science uh, and just to understand um, a very long story, it's, it's a nice paper to read. And I just thought, well, it was really nice to be reminded that it's been 10 years since these patients were given a second chance. I think that's really important context there of just the time scale around. But also you make a good point of you could have just run an antibody. Remember, to get a high-impact paper, you have to have single-cell RNA-seq now. <laughs> I guess. I so you guess. just do it. Right? Just throw it in the beginning and you call it a day. Yeah. Who needs, who needs uh, antibody development when you can just make a UMAP and just find your clusters there, right? Exactly. It feels so old school. Exactly. All right. Well, out with the, I guess, is, is CAR T-cell therapy old now? 10 years now. Out with the, the semi, the adolescent. And in with the super new still, back to COVID with endothelial cells. So I guess I'll give the title and then I'll give some context. I'll dive in. So this is extracellular vimentin is an attachment factor that facilitates SARS-CoV-2 entering into endothelial cells. It's in PNAS. Uh, first author is Razi Amray and last author is Nader Rahini um, or Nadir. And it was a published February 8th of this year. So before we go into further, the reason I found this interesting and I went after it was because we have known for some time that COVID isn't just a respiratory disease, it's also a vascular disease. And that has been one of its key problems, right? So it infects the vasculature of your lungs. And so regular ventilation didn't work very well. That's how we lost so many patients early on. We were ventilating like pneumonia doesn't help, doesn't help to put more oxygen in the lungs that were just fine. You're actually damaging them um, with ventilators when the issue is that you have a perfusion mismatch and the blood can't get there to exchange oxygen. Uh, you have heart attack, strokes with COVID. You even see it with the uh, vaccines that, the, you know, the biggest side effect is some form of blood clot. Sometimes it's the most concerning or heart inflammation, right? So there's very, which is not endothelial, but you're, you're still talking, you know, circulatory system. But like why it affects the endothelium, what's going on? Because ACE2, which is one of the main receptors, isn't that highly expressed on um, lung. It's Or not, sorry, it's there on lung, but more upper respiratory than lower respiratory. And it's there on endothelial cells, but it's not like, oh, the most important receptor ever. It's important there, but not the only thing. So it's not like it is the highest expressed there. Of course, it goes to the endothelial cells. Like, yeah, it's there, but why is this hitting the endothelium so much? And so this paper helps answer that, which shows that extracellular vimentin, which is on endothelial cells, expedites COVID, SARS-CoV-2 entry via the spike protein into cells. So vimentin binds to the spike protein and then through a co-interaction with the ACE2 receptor helps COVID or SARS-CoV-2 get into cells. And there's your answer. So the paper goes through, it does it's mostly cell work in 293 cells, some lung cancer cell lines. They use an antibody that blocked vimentin interaction with COVID that was known to affect that does that binds the spike protein in a different spot of the receptor binding domain area but a different spot than where ACE2 is known to specifically bind and showed that instead of blocking the same site, so it doesn't block the ACE2 binding section of the receptor binding protein, it blocks another site. And vimentin really does serve as a cofactor. So they take protein, they put it on, and they take cells that overexpress both or one, and then use either COVID binding protein, receptor binding domain to show, you know, ligand interaction or pseudovirus or virus to show infection and through you know all the permutations really demonstrate that COVID, that COVID, this vimentin is responsible for increased uptake into cells and they map it out they map out that it, and then i guess the key from the biochemistry again is then they use neutralizing antibodies and show that that antibody which is already known to bind to a non non-ACE2 section of the receptor binding domain 
knocks out the ability of the mentis to do its thing. So it's showing that it's a separate cofactor. So very interesting. Suggests that there's a whole bunch of more biology going on with viral entry. Uh, they do all types, you know, they use bait and trap proteins to find vimentin to begin with. They use, a, they use a bait approach to see what will bind to uh, the receptor binding domain besides ACE2. Um, pull it down, find out that it's vimentin by mass spec, put it into cells, go through the whole thing. So really solid viral, you know, immunological biochemistry, which is my happy land. Um, very well done like what it's showing, provide some really important clinical information, suggest that you could have antivirals that not just block ACE2, which has consequences, maybe block the other parts of the spike protein. So it's starting to get into some interesting biology here, for me at least. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. I I like, yeah, I like how um, we, there's there's more attention now paid also to the whole systemic uh, disease that that COVID really is, and I think some I think it's only now that general public is realizing that because it's been a mistake I think to always um, frame COVID as a respiratory disease because yeah as we see the the most uh, dangerous I think um, effects pathology is actually what happens in in your in your vasculature and and as such and the kind of maybe a little bit more hidden and people don't realize that. Uh, it's very interesting to see that we can identify factors that explain this tropism that maybe is not so self-evident. More uncovered every day. Yeah, yeah, it is. I had to say lately, it's it's so hard to keep up. There's so much being published um, and feels like everything is so important. Everything kind of solves a little piece of the puzzle um, and increases and enhances our understanding of the disease that I have to say, I feel a little bit... Um, outdated uh, especially when I was on holidays I didn't read that much so <laughs> I feel like a month came in Omicron came in and then so many things happened and I'm I'm just not up to date enough oh wait but I'm boosted so I guess that <laughs> good for now get my my t-cells will take care of me hopefully remember t-cells um, get the job done right yeah for sure for sure I mean so far I haven't gotten and I've been surrounded I've been completely surrounded by it so Oh, I got Maybe Omicron, I... but it was not that bad. Yeah, that's what I hear. So, still, not necessary to get it. I don't think it's an experience I necessarily want to have. Um, well, um, talking about experiences that I wish I had, which is making this amazing uh, engineered T-cells that I'm going to talk about now. Um, this is a work that comes from a lab that I admire very much, the lab of Alexander Marsen at UCSF. They are complete rock stars when it comes to engineering T-cells with CRISPR and non-viral methods of, um, of, yeah, of modifying T-cells. And they have been doing a lot of really cool stuff lately, a lot of screens, uh, CRISPR screens, looking into T-cell function. And I want to talk about one of those today. First, authors, authors Ralph Schmidt and Zachary Steinhardt uh, published in Science, I think, um, uh, well, well done. And uh, it's called CRISPR activation and interference screens decode stimulation responses in primary human T cells. And I think that this is mostly uh, a technology paper, so to say. They're really showing how far you can push the the, the tools. And I think that is very uh, admirable. They do make some nice points about uh, the kind of research that you can do with this tool. So let's just dive in. Uh, Basically, what they are showing is the results of what I assume are years of optimization and study of uh, a lentiviral, um, uh, so it's, it's a lentiviral mediated um, CRISPR screens for primary T cells, which is not that easy. Uh, they have been um, uh, they have been able to have very high transduction efficiency, so to really have functioning a functioning protocol for screening really large libraries. And what they basically, kind of a quick overview of what they do, um, they generate these this libraries for testing CRISPR activation and CRISPR interference uh, tools. So how does this go? They, they have modified Cas9s, which are this, this, this non-endonuclease 
uh, capable of these dead Cas9s. And they either couple them to the uh, the VP64 transcription activator uh, into the to the C terminus of the of this uh, uh, dead Cas9, or they have or they fused it to a Kerpel associated box, so a Crab repressor, that to to induce repression of a particular gene. Um, and so they started their screen with a uh, screen targeting eight over eighteen thousand protein coding genes with over a hundred thousand single guide RNAs, so huge, huge library, very, very impressive. And what they do is they look into the production of two particular cytokines, either IL-2 for CD4 cells or interferon gamma for CD8s. And using this, so they 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 uh, sort cells into the highest and the lowest producing for each. So after being the cells being transduce with this library and they identify and they use this to identify uh, regulators of the production of either of the cytokines. And the truth is that by now we have most of the pathways of, of that uh, mediate of that influence the production of IL-2 and interferon gamma pretty much figured out. But they show that by doing this CRISPR activating uh, activator, activation uh, um, screen, and they also kind of do the opposite. They do a CRISPR interference screen. Uh, they can basically reconstruct uh, the major uh, elements that regulate the expression of either of these cytokines. And I think they have a really nice example of how from this data, they can re-identify a majority uh, of, of, of elements that influence, for example, the NF-kappa-beta pathway that regulates interferon gum production. And they can find this all from their screen. And I thought uh, this is, I mean, we already know a lot about this pathway, so there's not a lot of new information, but if you're looking for a different pathway and you want to identify missing links, maybe this is the way to go. Um, they also look further. They try to, uh, they validate this by using r uh, experiments uh, where they assess also the, the they choose the, their most interesting, some of the most interesting targets and they, uh, look into the production of other cytokines, and they just use this to generate this really complex um, web a network of, of of factors. That again, a lot of this is already known, but this is something that they do based on their on only these screens. And what I think that they conclude on, which is is, is very nice as a tool, they uh, define what they uh, uh, call perturbed seek, which is uh, a platform that couples the pooled, so like uh, CRISPR-A perturbation, so uh, this library of CRISPR activators, and they pull them with barcoded single-state RNA-seq uh, readouts. So what they can do is they can just do all-in-ones. They transduce the cells with this activating library, and then uh, in order, they can just, on the with the same RNA-seq, a single-state RNA-seq, they can identify which is the guide RNAs that is um, targeting in this cell, and then have all of the transcriptome data that allows them to do all clustering and characterize the cells. So you don't, so it would be uh, instead of having to, uh, instead of only evaluating one particular known uh, readout, you can just do the whole transcriptome and see how each of the perturbations affects the, the whole thing. And uh, so they can also characterize cytokine activation scores or, or things like that. And then you can just really, in one go, look at the effects uh, throughout the whole transcriptome. Um, I thought it was really cool, cool paper. Um, really interesting to see what kind of things you can do with this technology. And I'm, I'm looking forward to see what they're going to apply it with and what kind of uh, questions uh, people can answer with this platform. So do they have any teases of things they've seen with this one in this paper besides here's the platform like, ooh, we found this pathway that was unknown or only hinted at or? Um, I think they do. So if they go through the paper, they do mention some some things. Uh, so, for example, they find some uh, a particular gene, uh, IKZF3, uh, which, for example, reduces the, the production of interferon without reducing the overall activation score. Because in many of the cases, what you get is 
some, some element that is associated with T-cell activation in general, and therefore it also affects interferon gamma expression and NF-kappa beta activation. But for example, by using this, they, they identify a particular element that uh, affects interferon gamma expression uh, without, uh, without um, yeah, messing with the activation score of the cell. Interesting. Which, All right. Well, we'll have yeah. to see what comes next. Yeah, for sure. Well, for us, what comes next is a great interview about dendritic cells, which we haven't gotten to talk about a lot. Yeah. We're going yeah. to be speaking with Dr. Catano Reyes-Susa at the Francis Crick Institute. But before we get to that, do you want to differentiate human pluripotent stem cells into monocytes? Check out the Stem Diff Monocyte Kit from Stem Cell Technologies. It generates millions of monocytes that are ready for downstream assays or for further development into macrophages or dendritic cells. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash monocyte kit. Today we're joined by Caetano Reyes-Azusa. He's a senior group leader of the immunology laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute in the UK. Uh, he and his lab have made really seminal contributions to our understanding of dendritic cells, particularly conventional dendritic cells and CDC1s. Really exciting uh, work came from his lab in this field. Um, he uh, he's joining us today from from London. Thank you so much for for talking to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, you do. I do like to think that all all, all immune cells do deserve their their spotlight. And I I do I feel very um what's the word very very aware, aware that the dendritic cells have not had enough attention uh, in our interviews. So I'm really happy to, to get to talk to you today. Um, uh, in the latest, so I just want to hop in right away and maybe we can start with sharing with our listeners a little bit about what has been um, your understanding or what is our current understanding of dendritic cells, particularly conventional dendritic cells and their development and their function, uh, especially when it comes to cross-presentations and those subsets that are, that are most re uh, recently been characterized, for example, as being important for cancer or um, other less, uh, initially less understood uh, functions? Well, that's a very big question. So let me try and break it down into smaller, smaller bits, perhaps. I, I think perhaps the, the, the first point to, to, to make is that there are many different things, many different cell types that are called dendritic cells, uh, and there's no universal definition of dendritic cells. Uh, and so uh, some people uh, will perhaps disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think that uh, it is perhaps easiest when talking about dendritic cells to consider the ones that were originally defined as such by Ralph Steinman nearly 50 years ago. And uh, despite all of the diversity in types of cells that have since been called dendritic cells, we now think that the ones that Ralph was referring to are probably uh, most likely the conventional dendritic cells, which is why this term conventional has really come into being, classical or conventional cells. And, and if you think about those, I think you would exclude anything that is a monocyte-derived cell, including things that have been called monocyte-derived dendritic cells. You'd probably exclude also the plasmacytoid dendritic cells, which we have started to refer to as plasmacytoid cells instead of plasmacytoid dendritic cells. And then you'll be left effectively with two basic flavors of these conventional dendritic cells. And those are the CDC1 that you've alluded to and the CDC2. Uh, now, it is true that all of these, including monocyte-derived cells, including plasmacytoid uh, cells, play key roles in the immune system. But unless we have a, some way of thinking about them and referring to them unambiguously, I think we, we tend to muddy the waters. So going back to your question um, about uh, functions of dendritic cells, the other thing that, that I think we have to consider is how many functions might be shared among cells, even amongst different flavors of cells. And the the other one is whether there are certain functions that might be unique to certain 
subtypes of cells. So the CDC1 have attracted a lot of attention because they seem to perform some non-redundant functions in cancer immunity, which is not to say that they can't do additional things that uh, DC2s can also do. And it is also not to say that DC2s can't also play a role in cancer immunity. So kind of going into some of your work uh, in relation to this, and, and by the way, going through your work, there there was a lot. Yeah, I think you had talked about um, this. I'm going to probably botch the pronunciation of this. Is Gelsolin? Did I get that right? Or Gelsolin? Yes, Gelsolin, correct. Okay, yeah. Gelsolin. All right, good. So I got there. Um, so I, I think we're going to range quite a bit across some of what you've studied. But could you talk a little bit about this? This was a really interesting paper where you found a pretty good single molecule, as in a, a single peptide that had an important effect that is druggable, which is often like the hardest thing to find. So, so, so then there's quite a bit of background to this, Jason, uh, and, and it goes back a little bit to Brenda's question about DC1s in cross-presentation. So as we all know, cross-presentation is the ability to, to display exogenous antigens as peptides on MHC class one, uh, which in many cases requires uh, those antigens to get access to the cytosol uh, of cells, which seemingly violates the rules of cell biology, where things from the outside end up in endosomes, but not in the cytosol. Um, what, so quite a few years ago now, we found the receptor that appeared to be very restricted to DC1s, although since then, we've also found it to be expressed in dendritic cell precursors in the mouse, for example, but very highly restricted to DC1s in both humans and, uh, and, and mice. And what this receptor uh, appears to do is, is to actually selectively uh, bind to dead cell remnants that a DC1 might encounter. It does so by binding to exposed F-actin on those remnants. And when it encounters those F-actin uh, remnants on a corpse or that's been internalized by a DC1, and this can happen now within a phagosome, it actually can signal to favor the rupture of that phagosome and release of those contents into the cytosol, thereby allowing them to enter the class one presentation pathway. So this will be a fairly simple mechanism for cross-presentation. But the key point is that this is not dependent necessarily on just unique cell biology of DC1s, which has been previously argued, but dependent on a particular receptor that they express. And we can put that receptor on other cells and make them behave exactly the same way. So not, perhaps not surprisingly, the properties of the DC1s are to some extent going to be dictated by the types of receptors that they express. And this is one example. Now, it turns out that the ability of this receptor to bind to F-actin is actively antagonized by another protein called gelsolin. And in fact, gelsolin can be secreted by all cells, including cancer cells, uh, using a, uh, a alternatively spliced form uh, where one of the exons contains a signal sequence. And this secreted gel cell, and as it's called, uh, turns out to potently block the binding of DNGF1 to F-actin. And consequently, what we found is that it's also able to block this cross-presentation by DC1s, including in contexts uh, where we're studying anti-cancer immunity. So it acts as a sort of dampener of this activity of DC1s in cross-presentation of dead cell-associated antigens. And in so doing, uh, it also can dampen anti-cancer immunity. So yes, as you, as you point out, that is potentially a druggable uh, target if we can find a way of blocking the ability of secreted gel solid to inhibit the ngr one mediated recognition of effectin then we could potentially augment uh, the this cross presentation and augment anti-cancer immunity we haven't done that pharmacologically but we have shown that genetically that by deleting secreted gel solid in mice uh, we can actually potentiate anti-cancer immunity uh, in, in those mice. So it, it is uh, potentially a, an interesting way of thinking about boosting uh, anti-cancer immunity 
by boosting dendritic cell mediated cross presentation. I also thought it was very interesting um, the fact that you find a similar receptor as kind of as kind of far off as in Drosophila uh, flies. You can find also receptors that are binding to uh, proteins that uh, indicate um, cellular damage, tissue injury. I thought that was really cool how you could find this homology way out uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the animal kingdom. That's right. So, so, I mean, just to clarify, there is no actual homologue or orthologue of DNGI1 itself in Drosophila. Uh, but what we have found is that Drosophila nonetheless possesses the capacity to respond to the extracellular presence of uh, 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 cytoskeletal elements. Uh, not, in fact, actin, uh, but uh, an, an actin-associated protein called alpha-actinin. Uh, so the principle, as you point out, is indeed uh, conserved throughout evolution. And I guess it makes sense, right? Ever since the, uh, the evolution of metazoan organisms, we have had a need to recognize tissue damage uh, to put in place tissue repair and to effectively uh, ensure uh, that uh, organs are, are restored uh, and organ function is restored. Uh, so uh, the uh, uh, fact that this exposure of cytoskeletal elements seems to serve as a sign of damage as far back as, as invertebrates, and then it's co-opted also by the immune system of vertebrates, uh, does indeed suggest that, that this is a, a, a common theme. And, and I think uh, does... Uh, lead us to think about ways in which we can think about cytoskeletal exposure in the context of various diseases. And one more question on this topic. Uh, I, uh, another, another very key uh, question that your lab has addressed uh, related to CDC1s is to understand better the mechanism of cross-presentation. Because I remember, especially like there's so many, uh, I have seen so many slides in which they say, yes, there is cross-presentation and there's a big kind of um, question mark in the between, between the, 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 entrant, the entry of the antigen and the presentation. Nobody had, nobody, it wasn't really clear how this crossing was happening. But your, your recent research did give us some really nice insights, especially in the case of the NGR1-mediated cross-presentation. Would you like to maybe share that too? That's right. I, I mean, I have to say that personally, this gives me a huge degree of satisfaction because my first project as a postdoctoral fellow in Ron Germain's lab was to study cross-presentation at that time in macrophages. Uh, and uh, actually... At that time, we came up with a very simple hypothesis that we called the indigestion model. Uh, we said, you know, there are a number of proposals that have been made for cross-presentation, including that perhaps uh, particular channels in phagosomes are specialized to transport polypeptides that are generated uh, from cargo that's internalized. Uh, and Ron and I actually said, well, that may well be the case, but in fact, another very simple uh, hypothesis is perhaps some of these phagosomes just burst, especially if the, there's overloading of the endocytic pathway, which is why we call it indigestion. And I think we even wrote about this rupture as a possible ulcer. Uh, and then many, many years later, we are studying this receptor, DNGR1. Uh, and in fact, it turns out to be a receptor that can control cross-presentation. And that's independently of, of cargo uptake. And I think actually a very neat experiment that uh, we were able to do that, that sort of like proves that point is if we feed uh, DC1s that express the NGR1 with latex beads uh, that contain ligand or not for the NGR1, uh, we can find that the beads that contain, uh, the, the, sorry, the cells that internalize beads containing ligand cross-present better. But of course, that could just be that they take up the beads better. So actually what we did is that we sorted the cells that had taken up precisely one bead and we could find those cells 
the beads are fluorescent. So we can actually take cells that took up precisely one bead. So all the cells had exactly the same uh, content of antigen, uh, which was bound to the latex beads. But one group additionally had the ligand for DNGR1 and the other one didn't. And the ones that had the ligand for DNGR1 actually cross-presented better. So that told us that whatever was happening was post-uptake. And after quite a bit of detective work, uh, we found that in fact, the NGR1 was signaling to promote uh, this indigestion and this rupturing of phagosomes. Now it's not an all or none phenomenon. It is basically causing localized membrane instability. We believe through uh, lipid oxidation by engaging NADPH oxidase. And that uh, increased oxidation of the lipids in the phagosome just raises the probability uh, that the phagosome will rupture. So not every single one uh, phagosome will rupture, but some of them will. And at that point, your material is in the cytosol and can access the proteasome. And we believe that this is actually a, a fairly simple mechanism that might be applicable to other cases, not just the NGR1. And I think it also tells us something quite important which I don't think we had fully appreciated because people had pointed out for a while that CDC1s are very good at cross-presentation compared to other cell types. And I think that was interpreted to mean that they have an in, a sort of constitutive ability. What I think these experiments show us is that some of this is inducible. In other words, it depends on a receptor actively signaling in response to its ligand and it's because the receptor tends to be restricted to DC1s that perhaps they come up tops in a lot of assays of cross-presentation. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because you've had a very busy 2021, and I can't just talk about your cell paper. We also have to talk about your science paper. <clears throat> so I was really interested in the Dicer protein that you put out with Dysoform. Um, oh, so, yes. As we know... You know, RNAi is really important for viral immunity in most critters, but hasn't really been established in humans. And we have interferons, but why don't we have RNAi? Because if you do it exogenously, it seems to work just fine, right? You can do, it, <clears throat> excuse me, you can do it with cells, but it's not like a thing. But apparently, it is a thing. And so, could you could you describe you know, from your very interesting science paper how you established it was indeed a capital T thing uh, for this alternative splice dicer? Well, Jason, I think you just gave the whole background to it, which is precisely the way that we were thinking. You know, as you point out, RNA interference is the major mechanism utilized by invertebrates and plants to defend themselves from virus infection. And we have all of that machinery there to execute RNA interference. We have uh, the argonaut complex uh, and one of the argonaut proteins, argo2, is capable, capable of endonucleolytic uh, slicing. Uh, so uh, everything is there. Why is it not being used? Uh, and so uh, a number of, of uh, researchers had actually proposed that perhaps RNAi is active also uh, in uh, mammals. Uh, that became very controversial. It actually became a very heated discussion in the field with people for and against. And I have always been interested in responses in particular to RNA viruses from our historical work uh, where we found that TLR7 was the receptor for uh, uh, RNA in endosomes. And then we later on found that RIG-I was uh, able to respond to five prime triphosphorylated RNA and diphosphorylated RNA. So we had always had an interest in how uh, the innate immune sense system responds to RNA viruses. And that, by the way, was quite independent of our work on dendritic cells. Um, so uh, someone, uh, Pierre Maillard, came to my lab quite a few years ago uh, with uh, the notion that he wanted to explore uh, RNA interference in mammals, which he had been doing already previously. And he and another colleague, Anna Martha van der Veen, provided some evidence that the system was there, present in mammals, but masked by the interferon response, which is so powerful. Uh, and, and that's where we had left it until another uh, individual, uh, Enzo Poirier, came to the lab 
more recently and wanted to look at this further. And our findings up to that point did suggest that dicer-mediated dicing of the RNA was really the bottleneck. That's where the inefficiency came into it. And it's interesting that organisms such as Drosophila actually have two dicers. They have a dicer that is involved in the microRNA pathway, much like uh, our human uh, dicer. But then they have a second dicer, dicer 2, that is specifically uh, co-opted uh, for uh, antiviral RNA interference. Uh, but we only have one gene encoding uh, dicer, so not two. Uh, and so Enzo and I had discussed the possibility that uh, there might be uh, two gene products from one gene. And sure enough, uh, he found that there was an alternatively spliced form of uh, DICER uh, that effectively was more efficient than canonical DICER at uh, chopping up uh, viral RNA or viral or double-stranded RNA analogs of viral RNA uh, and uh, was uh, able to effectively uh, um, more efficiently carry out the antiviral RNAi. Now, what was really interesting is that it turns out that this form of DICER, which we've called AVID for antiviral DICER, this form of DICER seems to be preferentially expressed uh, in stem cells, uh, including tissue stem cells. In fact, uh, we cloned it originally out of neural stem cells. Uh, and one uh, reason for that uh, may be that stem cells don't uh, rely as much on the interferon response. Uh, the interferon response tends to be cytostatic and cytotoxic, and perhaps you don't want to lose all of your stem cells if they engage that response. So they seem to be hypo-responsive to the interferons. Uh, uh, and this may be a sort of primordial antiviral mechanism that they fall back on, uh, and they use it preferentially. That, of course, begs the question, why don't just all cells use both? You know, why not have interferon response and antiviral RNAi? Why should they be antagonistic? Why should interferon suppress the uh, antiviral RNAi response? Uh, and we don't have a good answer for that, except to say, and we had already proposed this a, a few years ago, uh, except to say that um, uh, the interferon response relies on detection of these long phase paired RNAs, including double-stranded RNA, uh, which induce all of these antiviral effector proteins. But then the antiviral effector proteins, for example, PKR uh, or RNAs L or others, uh, still require the activation uh, by uh, the double-stranded RNA in order to perform uh, their uh, function. Um, so, uh, the uh, if uh, antiviral RNAi was involved in chopping up uh, all of the uh, base pair RNA uh, derived from the virus, then perhaps these other proteins could not then become activated after being induced by interferons, uh, and therefore they couldn't exert their effective function. So, <clears throat> so it looks like you've essentially found pretty solid evidence as it happens. Is there any follow-up that your guys are doing uh, more in humans to really show how well this works? I know like, you can't obviously go give them RNA eyes and see what happens, but I don't know if there's a, a way to look at this in patients in some form, like SNPs that affect the ability of this protein to function and infection rates or God knows what. Yes, I mean, we haven't actually uh, been able to do very much uh, with human patients or, um, or even some of the sort of genetic type of mining that you, you bring up. Uh, we have used, of course, human cells as well uh, as mouse cells. Uh, our strategy right now is to try and make a, a mouse model uh, of this and, and see if we can actually make a mouse model in which we get rid of uh, AVID uh, and then look for loss of function in a number of different uh, diseases. 
uh, viral diseases. Uh, I should point out that, that uh, Enzo Poirier, who, who, was, who carried out that work, uh, has now moved to Paris, where, where he's continuing uh, some of those studies. Uh, and uh, he may well uh, think a bit more deeply about how we could eventually move that uh, closer to, to humans uh, and potentially exploit it in, in some form of therapy. All right. So the next one to dive in, I'm just, I'm just going to go to your other science immunology paper for 21. And I, I guess I think maybe we'll have covered most people's lifetime of work, but you know, a year for you. So this paper you guys look at talks about how to sustain immunity to a pathogen in this case, influenza, because why not use a relevant one? You have to have the dendritic cells get there and do their magic. So can you explain top line, I guess, you know, why this, I think why it's important is clear. You want to sustain immunity, but what was, and this is where I, as a non-dendritic cell expert, what makes this extra surprising, right? Because when I think about like, of course you want all the immune cells in the places they need to be to do the things they do. So what was like the big aha moment here for this one that like really, I think helps solidify our understanding of dendritic cells? Yeah, so I mean, I think actually, in retrospect, as you point out, you sort of go, yeah, of course, duh, it has to be like that. Uh, but what I don't think was had been articulated before uh, was that, in fact, this is needed. Uh, so every textbook of immunology that I know of will show that dendritic cells and will state dendritic cells are sentinel cells. They're present in tissues and they are mobilized in response, for example, to infection, uh, where they uh, effectively transport uh, pathogen antigens and pathogen signals uh, into the draining uh, lymph nodes where they can then prime T cells. I haven't really seen anywhere in those textbooks the next sentence that says, but by the way, there's not enough dendritic cells in tissues to do this. And therefore, at a point where you are infected, you need to call for backup and ensure that you get more dendritic cells to make sure that you've got enough sampling capacity for all of these pathogen antigens and all of these signals to then sustain an immune response. And by the way, if you interrupt this backup, you're in a bit of trouble because you will get an immune response, but you won't be quite of the magnitude uh, that you need and you won't quite generate the memory that you need. So that was our aha moment, as you put it, which is the realization that, of course, you can't have a tissue chock-a-block full of dendritic cells. Uh, you need to have just enough to get things started. And what you then need to have is a system that cleverly calls for backup, but it's very localized. And that backup, by the way, comes all the way from the bone marrow, because, of course, that's where the dendritic cell precursors develop. And that's uh, the place from which they have to leave to then uh, uh, colonize uh, the uh, tissues. And in the steady state, in, in homeostasis, this is a freewheeling cycle. It's happening all the time at some basal level. But I think what we found uh, is what we've called emergency DCPOESIS, which is that in situations of demand, you can greatly accelerate uh, this mobilization of these precursors so that you've got increased numbers of them being released into the blood. And what we found in that paper is that quite remarkably, they are directed specifically to these sites where they are needed. So in the case of influenza infection, you actually direct them specifically to the lung. So you've got these precursors, they don't go to the spleen, they don't go to other places, they go to the lung where they increase in numbers. But even more remarkably, they go very specifically to the foci where the infection is happening. So you find them now adjacent to the sites where you see viral antigen, where there's viral replication. And this process incidentally is controlled by CCR2, a chemokine receptor, uh, that uh, we have generally associated with monocyte mobilization, not with dendritic cell mobilization. And again, just to go back to, to something I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I'm talking about conventional dendritic cells, not about monocyte-derived cells that people have sometimes called dendritic cells. So these are 
the canonical bona fide conventional dendritic cells that are being called to those sites uh, where they are needed. And if you will, this makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have a whole lung, even if there's quite a few dendritic cells in that lung, it's a large space. And so if you've got infection hope happening in some alveoli, you can't really get dendritic cells from other alveoli far away to traverse the tissue and get to where they need it. The only way that you're gonna get more at that site is if you get them from the blood because the blood of course is irrigating every part uh, of, of the lung. So that's precisely what you do. And we're very interested right now uh, in understanding this process of emergency DC breezes and what signals control it, because you could see how you could harness that potentially in vaccination. Uh, you could, you know, if indeed you need more than drink cells than what's there to actually sustain a strong immune response, uh, then if you figure out what are the right signals to deliver to the particular tissue where you're depositing your antigen, then you might actually increase the efficiency of your vaccine. And just as a final point, we found that in the case of flu infection, it was CCR2 that was important, but actually that is not universally the case for every challenge. So for example, in another model of parasite infection, which is also affecting the lung with Nipostrongus brasiliensis, uh, which we also uh, showed in that paper, you still have this recruitment of dendritic cells as acute backup, but in that case, it's not CCR2 dependent, and we still don't know what it depends on. That is really fascinating. And well, as I say, if you say, if you put it that way, it makes sense that they'll go there, but I guess that you don't know until you don't see it and you don't prove it. So very fascinating. Um, I, I think we could keep talking about your research for a really long time. There's always uh, this, there's a lot to talk about, but uh, I think we're going to call it a scientific day for now. Uh, but before you, you go, we would like to ask you a um, tangent question. Um, and we would like to ask you, what is the biggest misconception about science that you would like to resolve? I don't know if it is the biggest, but it's one that I, I feel strongly about, uh, which is the concept of science and arts and humanities as separate human activities. And, and you often find the, the so-called intelligentsia of, of various countries sort of proudly declaring, oh, I know nothing about science. But if I, as a scientist, say, oh, who was Beethoven or... Uh, you know, who was Picasso? They would think that I'm an ignoramus. And I think the, this notion that we have these different uh, uh, human activities is something that needs to go. I mean, what I think is fascinating about science is that it's really uh, about our humanity. is what effectively distinguishes us from animals is our curiosity about the world that surrounds us. And that curiosity is the same that drives it the arts and the humanities. So from the beginning of time, uh, you know, uh, uh, humans uh, depicted the world around them. You know, that's the, 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 the origins of art. Uh, the paintings in caves are effectively a, a depiction of the world. And with that depiction of the world comes the wish to understand that world. And that's the basis of science. So for, for me, uh, science is really just a continuum in human activity. And I think that, you know, that there's this big misconception that we, we should compartmentalize these things. And I think there's uh, quite a few people now who actually are looking at these interfaces between art, science, literature, music. And I think that we're all the richer for that. That's very... Very, I agree with that very much. No, we should usually plan the comeback of the Renaissance man or, or woman. But I think also, no, this this idea of separating the the hard sciences from the arts it's not it's kind of recent because if you looked at all the scientists from the 15th, 16th century, they did it all, and they Absolutely. didn't see a reason not to um, 
coined all the fields. Absolutely. And Leonardo da Vinci was an amazing painter, inventor, anatomist, uh, sculptor. I mean, that's, that really is, I think, uh, how we, we should be thinking about science as part of this continuum. Although I think it gets difficult because, you know, back then a scientific discovery, you know, like how many figures in paper, in panels are in paper now? <laughs> you really are. You're, you're an immunologist and you're a molecular biologist and you're a cell biologist and you're a chemist and about, like to do one thing, you know, it's so expanded. But yeah, no, I agree that uh, we've kind of, it's not as narrow as people think science is, but simultaneously, I think to just get something out now requires so much. You're almost a renaissance human of science to be able to do anything indeed indeed thank you so much for joining us Cayetana, today and uh we enjoyed the conversation very much and thank you as well it's been very interesting and uh, I i'm very fascinated about the dicer stuff i think that's really cool to find i have to say well thank you very much for having me and it's been a great pleasure that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>